The South African rugby team's tour of Australia in 1971 was one of the most politically charged and rancorous periods in not only the sporting but also the political history of this nation. Tens of thousands of anti-apartheid protesters clashed with police in various cities as they sought to disrupt the tour and make a public statement against the racist policies, uh, policies that lay at the heart of South Africa's political system and also the discriminatory process through which the team was selected. As some of you who were around at that time might remember, this led to Queensland Premier Joe Biocchi peterson declaring a state of emergency. There were also many divisive debates at the time about the mixing of sport and politics and the Australian government's willingness to allow the tour to take place. This uh, period is the subject of a new book by Larry Reiter. It's called Pitched Battle, in the front line of the 1971 Springbok Tour of Australia, and it's a highly engaging read that includes perspectives from a whole range of people, including activists, rugby players and politicians. Larry Reiter is a journalist and author of very various non-fiction books on a whole range of subjects and he joins us today on the line. Thanks so much for being there, Larry. Thanks for asking me, Dylan. And so, I mean, it's a really engaging book, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, and it's what I found most fascinating about it was the way that the period had been remembered by people uh, who were kind of on the front line being involved in protests and also the rugby players uh, who were around at that time, some of whom decided not to play against the South African team. But I wonder if we can go to, to your memory of that time and what it was like for you living in Australia then. Well, I think... Um, I think like many other Australian, uh, Australians at the time, um, it was a generational thing. Um, you sort of found that uh, younger people were against the tour, older people were for the tour because the government supported it. Don't forget, at that stage, the Liberal Party had been in for 22 years, and we were a deeply conservative society. And the other thing was that um, we all... I guess not too many people knew anything at all about apartheid. There was a, um, a news blackout coming out of South Africa. We knew little bits and pieces. And there were various groups of activists that were trying to educate us. But as far as I was concerned, living in a middle-class family in the southern suburbs of Sydney, um, I guess my parents were for it. I was against the tour, but I didn't really understand why. And it wasn't until... The tour was underway, and I think this is true for a lot of us, that until the tour was under, underway and we started to read about it and to wonder why people were getting so worked up, that we started to realise that apartheid is such an iniquitous um, thing. And it's really fascinating to think of, of the kind of country Australia was at that time because it, it would have been almost a sense that we were kind of at a crossroads. It was um, before the Whitlam government was elected to power. It had been a long period of um, Liberal Party uh, being in power in Australia. It was only a few years after the referendum to include Aboriginal Australians in the census and allow the federal mm. government to, to make policies on, on behalf of them. So there was a sense that we were kind of, um, I guess, trying to come to terms with not only the, uh, the situation in South Africa, but our own history of, um, you know, racist politi policies and how that impacted on the first Australians. Absolutely. The white Australia policy was still in force in, in those years too, and no one really cared much about that. Mm. Uh, it was, um, I, think, I think the Vietnam War, first of all, the demonstrations against that, and then a couple of years later in 71, the demonstrations against the, um, against the Springboks and against apartheid, generally was um, an awakening, um, an enlightenment that came upon Australia. And it was certainly hard won because like most things that are worth doing, it took um, a lot of argument, a lot of broken heads, a lot of broken bones, um, and a lot of divisions within families, within society, within the workplace, 
um, sports lovers, all of that sort of thing, were at each other's throats during this period. And um, I think at the, um, in early 1971, before the Springboks came, um, there was a poll taken and something like 60 to 85% of Australians either were ambivalent about apartheid um, or had never heard of it. And so um, at the end of the tour, after all of the argy-bargy had gone on, it was something like 50-50. So um, there were gains that were certainly won. And, of course, the, at the end of that year, the cricket tour, the South African cricket tour, was cancelled mm. because it was seen as being just the wrong thing to do. And the following year, in 72, Whitlam got um, elected. Labor was elected, and one of the very first things that his government did was... Um, cut sporting ties with South Africa and again people by that stage were thinking well that's the thing that we should be doing at this stage like the rest of the world and there are a range of kind of uh, key figures in, in advancing the, the anti-apartheid cause and also disrupting the games that happened throughout the Springboks tour were there any um, I suppose particularly significant people who we can say really led that change and led the broader awakening throughout Australian society yes there were two main groups um, there was the AAM, which is the anti-apartheid movement, which was, which comprised a lot of veterans from the um, anti-Vietnam demonstrations, and they were mostly unionists and students, um, predominantly students, in fact. And they were they followed a um, a campaign of civil disobedience to stop the games. They would they would run onto the field, they'd throw smoke bombs, they'd get arrested, they'd do anything. You know, they were prepared to bleed to stop it. And there was another group called CARIS, which is the Campaign Against Racism in Sport. And this was a more moderate um, organisation uh, of clergy, of committed Australians who did know about apartheid, um, but wanted to go about it in a more peaceful way to try to change minds through argument and reasoning rather than through um, blunt force, as AAM did. And representing CARIS were seven extraordinary people who are at the heart of my book, actually. Uh, they're known as the Rugby Seven, and mm. they were all Australian Wallaby rugby players who had toured South Africa um, either in 1963 or 1969 and come face-to-face -face with apartheid. They'd been in stadiums where, and they'd seen black people beaten, they'd seen police dogs turn loose on them, they'd seen two, two people beaten to death. Um, they, they came across this institutionalised racism everywhere they went in ordinary society in South Africa. And they came back and they said, look, our conscience simply won't allow us to play against these Springboks because as good a guys as the Springboks are, and they were fabulous footballers, um, the South African government used the Springboks as almost as a stalking horse, as the embodiment of their regime and the apartheid regime. So the Australians thought to, to play against the Springboks would be to condone um, the South African government and its policy of, of apartheid. So they refused to play. And by doing so, because they were, they were sportsmen, they weren't long-haired radicals, they weren't students, they weren't unionists, they were mainly business people or um, uh, pillars of society, they validated the anti-apartheid movement. People started to think, well, these terrific guys who are, you know, are stand-up people within society are against apartheid. Maybe there's something to what they're saying. And they started to, um, to listen, and the message sunk in just how dreadful things were in South, uh, South Africa and how we were being used by the South African government to validate the, um, the policy.
It's fascinating. The early part of the book really kind of charts their experience really well. I mean, you've got first-hand accounts from those um, those players who went on that uh, initial tour to South Africa and played, and it really came down to a personal uh, experience and personal encounter with them, where many of them had kind of uh, you know socialised with black South Africans who were working at the hotels they were staying at, and they kind of got along with them well, and then saw the horror of the way that were treated in broader yeah. society, but also particularly at those games where there was quite extreme violence. The, well, the, the black supporters would barrack for the Australians because they would barrack against anyone who was playing against the, the team that represented the South African government. So, um, and they were herded into little, they were segregated into little areas in, in um, parts of the arenas uh, which had the worst vantage point to watch the game. And um, at one stage in the third test, it was in 1963, um, the referee made a mistake and which allowed the Springboks to win that particular test. And the black supporters there started throwing bottles onto the pitch, which, was the, which ignited um, the police force and the army to simply charge in and just, you know, just treat them brutally. The Australians all gathered under the, under the goalposts and thought, you know, what on earth is going on here? We've never seen anything like this. So it, it awakened in a lot of these players um, a need to learn more about this terrible thing that they'd seen firsthand. And a lot of them studied. They went to Berkeley and, um, to continue their studies at um, Berkeley University, which was in the middle of the civil rights movement at that stage. And they came back and they decided to do what, what they could to um, increase Australians' awareness of, of apartheid and in so doing perhaps also increase Australians' awareness of some of the things that were being done to our own Indigenous people. Yeah, and that's a really fascinating element of the protest at the time because some of those who were kind of really strong in the anti-apartheid cause were, um, I mean, criticised for some uh, Indigenous Australian activists for, for, you know, essentially turning a blind eye to the plight of them and yeah. at the same time yeah. getting so enraged by the situation facing people in South Africa. And, I mean, we have um, Gary Foley, for example, comes in our yeah. show regularly and he was someone who was very prominent in that, um, that period as well. Gary was terrific because uh, Meredith Bergman, who was um, a major, who's a major um, voice in my book, who was one of the main leaders of the AAM um, and was arrested, you know, many, many times throughout that, and went on to become the leader of the Legislative Council in the New South Wales <laughs> government. <laughs> it's funny how things change. Mm. But she said that Gary um, particularly made the anti-apartheid protesters here realise um, that they weren't doing enough, that it was hypocritical for them to be complaining. It was good, but also hypocritical for them to be complaining against what was happening in South Africa while not lifting a finger to do, to do something about what was happening here. And a number of people, like Jim Boyce, who was one of the Rugby Seven, and Meredith herself, um, said, well, look, yes, what Gary's saying is absolutely true. And consequently devoted large parts of the rest of their lives to um, to working for um, Indigenous causes here in Australia. So that was another benefit that came out of this. There was an interesting um, story that Jim Boyce told me. He met uh, John Vorster, who was the South African Prime Minister, and Vorster said to Jim back in 63, no black man will ever wear a Springbok jersey. Um, and Jim came back, he collected four Springbok jerseys when he was touring in South Africa. And in 1971, when, the, um, when Gary and some of the other uh, black activists were campaigning um, against the Springboks, um, he gave them Springboks 
jerseys to wear at the demonstrations. So that was uh, that was Jim's little um, little gesture, mm. little poke in the eye to Vorster, I think. <laughs> well, what's really interesting, uh, I mean, the arguments that were circulating at the time, the justification that the government put forward for allowing the tour to happen was that essentially sport and politics are two different things, that we can have a, a sporting team from such a, you know, a gov- government or a country with very racist polities tour in Australia, and that doesn't really impact on our ability to kind of enjoy the spectacle mm. and, and so on. And we still hear that kind of sentiment today, even around, for example, the um, booing of Adam Goods uh, in yeah. the AFL, uh, you know, over the past few years, particularly um, saying that, oh, well, you know, he's kind of brought politics into the sporting arena and that that's not welcome. But if you look mm. through history, some of the most iconic and, and catalysts for change have been images of sports people taking a political stand, such as Nikki Winmar, Muhammad Ali. I mean, that's been the arena where a lot of Absolutely. social change has, has yeah. kind of moved forward. No, that's very true. And uh, some other instances of that was, um, was the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, the Hitler Games, which mm. was used as a public relations exercise by the Nazis. And um, people were saying, yeah, we can go and compete over there. Um, it, um, it doesn't mean we're supporting National Socialism, but in fact it was. Um, by competing in those games, we were validating um, the, the Nazis' uh, public relations campaign to make the rest of the world think that they were um, not as bad as everybody was, uh, was saying that they were. But it's, it's interesting, with the, um, with the Springboks tour in 71, the opposition, the government opposition, and don't forget we had, we had some very, very reactionary premiers at that stage. We had Henry Bolte in Victoria, we had Robert Askin in New South Wales, and Joe Bjorki-Peterson in Queensland. Um, and our Prime Minister was, um, was not as reactionary, but he was, he was a man who was prepared to let these very outspoken premiers have their way. And the... Uh, the government line and the state government's line was that sport and politics shouldn't move, uh, sorry, shouldn't mix, but this conveniently forgets the fact that the Springbok team, um, the all-white Springbok team, was chosen as a result of a political um, process. Mm. That is apartheid. So you can't have it both ways, I think. Well, I mean, and sports, I mean, a, a microcosm of, of society as well, and it's what's really pointed out in, in the demonstrations, in, in kind of attacking or... or condemning this, the Springboks tour of Australia, it was sending a message that, that, you know, you can't have a system that's built on these discriminatory practices and still rip the mm. benefits of, of a sporting tour. That's, that's exactly right. Look, also, I, I think I've tried, to, I've tried to cut some slack to the, the pro-tour people because we, we were operating in a vacuum to a great extent. We didn't know anything about um, or very, we knew very little about apartheid in 1971 because in South Africa there was no television, so um, there was no um, film footage coming into Australia of what was going on there. Uh, there were, the newspapers were heavily censored. So a lot of people are thinking, you know, um, what's this apartheid thing? You know, is it another, another thing that's going to keep me from my sport? Um, they didn't really understand it, and it wasn't until until they, were, they would read about apartheid in some of the more enlightened broadsheets because what the newspapers would tend to do, their front page would be of someone, some demonstrator being, being um, beaten up or dragged off the Melbourne cricket ground or the Sydney cricket ground, and two or three pages in they'd have a think piece, possibly by one of the Karras people, saying this is why um, we can't condone apartheid. And gradually the message seeped in 
and we we came to realize you know just what was going on there and it was a it was a terrific coming of age um <clears throat> excuse me um for australia at that you are listening to a podcast from australia's best known community radio station 3 triple r 102.7 in melbourne stage but it was hard won and a lot of people were bruised and a lot of friendships were broken over it. And it was a coming of age for a range of kind of key identities in, in Australia's history that were kind of finding their feet at that time in, in fighting mm. apartheid and fighting the Springboks tour. I mean, um, Bob Hawke at the time was president of the ACTU and he led a very strong campaign against the tour even before the, the Labor Party had sort of opposed it. Um, yeah. And people such as Peter Beattie were active in Queensland as well when there was a state of emergency declared by Joe Bjocchi-Peterson um, you know, Peter Beattie was um, kind of fleeing from from guards at the time, police, mm. who were very brutal in the nature of their crackdown on protesters oh, as well. Yeah, Peter was a um, idealistic young student who was um, caught up in a demonstration at Tower Hill outside the Springboks Motel um, in the middle of Brisbane. And um, the police um, were directed by Bjocchi-Peterson, who gave them immunity to do pretty much what what they wanted to do to um, to the demonstrators because it was a state of emergency and civil liberties were, were suspended for that time. So the police charged these people and they forced them down to the bottom of a hill and up against a fence and beat them mercilessly. And uh, Peter Beattie was there and he, he ran for it and was cornered in a, um, in a building and was attacked by three police. One of them jumped on his back and he was hospitalised with suspected spinal damage. And when he finally got out of hospital, he said, look, I think I want to be a politician and um, if I ever get um, some position of influence, I'm going to be a very different politician than um, Joe Bjocchi-Peters. And, and, and so it turned out to be. So that's another thing. And Bob Hawke, of course, was the leader of the ACTU and he imposed black bans um, on the... Uh, on the planes that were flying the um, Springboks around, they had no mail deliveries. Um, there was no food, there was no alcohol delivered to the hotels or restaurants where they were where the um, the Springboks were eating and living. Um, so they did what they could to to make the tour as unpleasant and impossible as it could possibly be. And and as you mentioned, it was a, a very kind of hard won victory in getting the broader Australian masses on board in, in opposing apartheid. But it did lead to the cancellation of the cricket tour later that year, as you mentioned. And it was many years before a South African rugby team came back to Australia. And I get the sense yeah. from from the people you spoke to in the book who were very much at the forefront of this movement that they have immense satisfaction at what they achieved yes they do they um it's something that most of them would say it's the best thing i've done in my life you know standing up and speaking out against it to the point of giving up their wallaby jersey and you know they were they were dedicated rugby people and winning a wallaby jersey playing for your country was the most important thing for them in their life at that stage and for them to to turn that chance down on a principle um, and then to be proven right as as the years have gone by, I think it does give them satisfaction. Um, it's interesting because it cost a lot of them friendships. Um, it, cost, it cost some of them jobs. Um, some of them were um, attacked and abused at games when they were trying to hand out leaflets and um, do that sort of thing. And, they be, and in fact, Sir William McMahon called them disgraces to Australia publicly came out and said the seven wallabies who refused to play were disgraces to Australia and 
you know, that was a that was a pretty heavy burden to bear, I think. Mm. And um, the first bit of validation came when Sir Donald Bradman had a look at what had happened during the rugby tour a few months earlier and said, look, we can't extend our invitation to the South African, all-white South African cricket team. We simply can't do it. And yes, it's going to be a logistical nightmare trying to control a five-day test match, as it would have been, um, and having to put, you know, put up with all of the policing and all of the things that the rugby administrators had to do. But the reason that he gave was that we cannot extend the invitation because apartheid is wrong. And uh, would have it been easy for him to say, look, you know, it's just too hard. But in fact, he came out and said, it's, uh, it's a terrible system and one that we can't condone. And by that stage, Australians were saying, well, I think you have a point. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating read that's um, incred- incredibly detailed, but also highly readable. And um, congratulations on the book, Larry. I highly enjoyed it. As someone who, I guess, wasn't around at that time to live through it, it's something that I'd heard of, but learnt a lot from from reading. Uh, Pitched Battle is the book. It's uh, by Larry Reiter. It's published through Scribe, and you can get it now at a range of good bookstores around Melbourne and also online. Thanks so much for joining us today, Larry. Dylan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you. It's time now for The Reading Room, and as we do monthly on this show, we have acclaimed children's author and illustrator Sally Rippon joining us in the studio. Sally, of course, is the creator of, of Billy B. Brown and the Hey Jack series, among others. Welcome, Sally. Always good to have you in. It's always great to be here. Missing Carlia today, though. It's I know. All nice. lonesome. Yeah, we'll do, we'll do some fun things. <laughs> we will, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if you listen to this uh, segment regularly, you'd know that Sally never fails to bring in really interesting and engaging guests, and today's guest is no exception. Elise Hurst is an artist, author and illustrator with more than 50 titles under her belt, including the books A Dream of Bunyip's Dancing, Imagine a City and The Night Garden, among others. Her most recent work is Adelaide's Secret World and it's been shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Award, which is very exciting. Elise, thanks so much for stopping by. It's lovely to be here. And so what was it like when you heard that um, that your new book had been shortlisted for the PM's Award? There might have been a bit of stomping on the ground and woohooing. <laughs> yeah, it was very, very exciting. And you put so much work into this one as well and we were chatting a little bit earlier before about how how important it can be for a fine artist or a creator to be recognized in that way because people often don't know how much work particularly goes into a picture book not just that particular picture book but how many years you've been working to be able to create something like that so did that feel very encouraging that it was really like a signpost you're you're working in the right direction you're on the right path absolutely yeah it's there are some books that you do that are they're quite easy because they're in your comfort zone and you can kind of get through them pretty quickly and you're not stretching yourself and then every now and then you've got to just stop and actually try and really see what you can do as an artist and as a writer and that's definitely what one of this book is and it was something that took you know instead of doing four books a year I was doing one book over two years and it was all a series of huge oil paintings and just writing the story itself took an amazingly long process And so it was really something that stretched me as an artist and a writer. So to have someone put a little sign up and say, keep going, well done, that's huge because that was a gamble. And a risk worth taking here. And you've got the book in front of you, Dylan, but I've seen the original artwork in there. Each one is is an oil painting. Mm. It was actually um, exhibited a while back at the No Vacancy Gallery. Yeah, that's right, in in QV. Yeah, Yeah, it's a beautiful book and you can even see um, on the page, even though obviously it's not canvas, but you can see the texture. You can see that there's a lot of work Mm. that's been put in to each each page. I mean, each all the details are so intricate. And 
for this particular book, was it primarily kind of the, the painting that took the most time or was it what the story that, that was the main sort of reason, I guess, that it took quite a while? I think it was a story. It's a, it was a real evolution. It started off where it was going to be a story about a woman and she was living probably somewhere in New York and she was sort of living a bit of a lonely artist existence so this wasn't a real stretch for me to try and work out that aspect of the story and uh, for anyone who's seen the book you know that she ended up turning into a rabbit and uh, the story it just went through so many different morphings that it's um, yeah it took a really long time to work out that story and the style itself once I I worked out that it was a rabbit and that tied into a painting that I'd done years ago for my first solo exhibition of this very uh, demure rabbit sitting in a cafe having a a hot chocolate and once I, I tied it into that character the rest of it sort of flowed so even though yes the paintings were hard and they took a very long time it wasn't anywhere near the pain level that the writing was mm. and forgetting the concept right isn't it in yeah a sense. i know there's so many possibilities yeah and interesting your decision then to change i hadn't realized that she did begin as a human because we've chatted yeah. quite a little bit about using animals in picture books so what did that shift allow you to do from taking up from a human form to a rabbit form i think it just really freed up my imagination and i find if i'm doing a character that's a person and it looks like a person you know it's the difference between say seeing um models being photographed and then looking at your National Geographic photographs of people. When I look at those photographs, it is a particular person with a particular story and I'm trying to unpick that person's story. When I use anthropomorphism and I'm I'm looking at animals as humans, that story is suddenly whatever I want it to be. And anyone who looks at it is going to be putting their own experience and their own ideas into it as well. So it really opened up the possibilities of the character and it allowed me to just think, no, no, I'm not telling just one person's story. I'm giving hints and I'm trying to make it so much wider. What was it about a rabbit specifically that kind of gave you a way in to this? Because, I mean, rabbits have been used in in many stories. Of course, Peter Rabbit were the most Mm. famous example. But but we give animals these traits like like snakes are supposed to be sly and there's these kind of... um, meaning that we attribute to animals um, almost sort of unconsciously in, in many ways. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the rich aspects of, of using animals. Uh, it works on so many different levels. I mean, for a start, if you pick an animal, you can avoid all mention of race, of colour, of religion. Um, people all of a sudden realise, OK, we're telling a story here. I don't need to work out who that person is and are they different to me or are they similar? Um but also uh, we do have this wealth, this historical lot of storytelling that we associate with these animals. So I think it's it's all the richer because there is Peter Rabbit and there are all those characters and everyone who looks at it and who looks at a lot of my work, and it's a very similar across all sorts of different uh, drawings that I do, they say, oh, that reminds me of... And all of a sudden, behind this book, in the background, they have this other huge lot of storytelling that's just creeping around in the back of their head and it's adding a whole extra dimension. Going right back to Aesop's fables, really, aren't they? Yeah, Morality absolutely. Tales. Yeah. Mm. And the, the characteristics of those animals is just adding an extra depth. And the book will be different. There's a, a fox in this story who's sort of the love interest. Um, and that in itself is fun to have a, a rabbit and a fox. And some people remark on it and find it very weird and other people just 
take it as, oh, it's just a rabbit and a fox. <laughs> but for a farmer, you know, the fox is, is one particular kind of character and for a, a child who's read lots of Beatrix Potter, it's a very different kind of character. Mm. Or it could be the hero in a Roald Dahl story Absolutely. as well. You can subvert that a lot and a lot of children's authors will play on that as well. So either yeah. if they're dealing with a topic that might be too invasive for a child, too yeah. close, sometimes animals can do a really good job of that. For example, Margaret Wilde, we use animals a lot in telling quite difficult stories. Old Pig is about death. Yeah. And that could be quite confronting to read a story about death if it's a grandfather or a grandmother. Yeah. But with animals, there is a sense that you can um, project your emotion into them without it being too intense, too close. Mm. Yeah, Although so I do remember bawling my eyes out as a kid to a land before time, even though it was a dinosaur. Oh, Charlotte. Sad. Charlotte the spider died. How many spiders have I killed since <laughs> I think I still got it. <laughs> I know. It's wrong. Um, I'm working on a story at the moment and probably shouldn't give too much away, but uh, it's a story about a character who looks very, very strong on the outside, and he's a bear, um, but he's just really broken on the inside. And I I love that, that that is the problem that so many people experience, especially men, where they, they look big and they look competent and they look like they could break a wall with their fist. And it, it speaks nothing to what's going on inside. And there's this expectation that appearance must equal reality and the way you interact with the world. And it's just not the case. And so it's a really important choice of the animal to make for that book. Um, because it's going to hopefully speak to the people out there who are big and strong and who are terribly broken that it's okay, you know, you just, this happens. That's a lovely way to describe something like that. Good work. Yeah, mm. I'm excited to see that. Is this going to be a picture book? It is, yeah. it is. Yeah, great. So, um, I was reading over the weekend, at least, that um, on, on your website that it was kind of the... Uh, being pushed by a friend when at university studying archaeology originally that kind of, um, you know, nudged you into illustration and, and the art world. Was that really a significant moment where you think perhaps you might not have chosen this as your career path or, or was it just yeah. kind of like the nudge that you needed at that time? I think it was just, uh, it was a very nice little coincidence. But I think... I have thought, okay, this is how it all started, but really it happened because I was doodling all over my books all the time. I couldn't stop drawing, even if I tried. And every, even when I was studying archaeology, everything I chose, every topic was always geared towards art in some way or something visual. So I think I was never going to get away from it. It might have just been deferred for a couple mm. of years. But <laughs> it did make fourth-year archaeology very difficult because I was working on my first two books at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and you grew up in the house of, the, of a mother who was a painter too, so it's not mm. like you had parents who said, go off and have a sensible career. <laughs> you were choosing this for yourself. Well, I was um, all my family, my mum's side, uh, her sister and her brother and her parents were all painters, mm. but they were all sort of Sunday painters most of the time. Um, so they hadn't, most of them hadn't really tried to do it as a career. My uncle more so, but so I kind of thought, well, that's not really something I can do as a career. And I never had an artist come to school and say, yeah, this is totally something you can do and earn money and support a family. Mm. Um, so obviously I went to uni and thought, so archaeology, that's going to be a good career. I'm very good <laughs> at those choices. Um, so yeah, I just kind of fell into illustration and then thought, well, let's... I remember standing in a lift and thinking I could do archaeology or I could do illustration and that's kind of the moment, I remember the moment that I made the choice. Wow. And, and I mean do you, I mean, when you take that on full time, obviously you're spending a lot of your waking hours painting and, and drawing and yeah. also I imagine with one eye on sort of the, the commercial side, hoping that your work's going to sell and, and you know, generate income and so on, but do, do you still feel inclined to you know, doodle on a page when you're waiting somewhere? You're always mm. wanting to, to produce 
art still in those kind of downtimes? Yeah, I'm, I made a bit of a mistake, which I didn't realise I was doing in my 20s and my 30s, where I, I re- thought that every waking moment had to be work. And I was taking on so many jobs, and I've done 50 books because I just didn't ever say no. And I raced around and I did... I don't know if the work was good or not. Sometimes it probably wasn't because I was just so busy thinking about the next deadline and writing a list before I went to bed and you've got one book getting started, another one getting finished and you're seeking out the next job. And I think it was just so much about this crazy trajectory of doing more and more and more that I, I hadn't stopped and just drawn for no reason for a really long time. And then someone gave me a little one of those little moleskin sketchbooks and it was a really important moment for me because now... When I was waiting in a queue or sitting on a tram, I started drawing. And for the first time in my life, I suddenly found I had a style. I didn't have a style before then. I changed my style for every single book, depending on what I thought it needed, what language of illustration was required. And I had this just this cascade of characters and scenes that just t- sort of tumbled out. It sounds corny, but it re- really no, happened. they're beautiful. I've seen these mole skins. <laughs> and you were talking about the importance of play because it is, like you say, Dylan, it is really tricky when you have a deadline or expectation yeah. or even if you put the pressure of earning money from your art. Mm. And we all need to earn money to be able to make a living, obviously. But you said it was that moment of allowing yourself to play that yeah. really that's when the good stuff started to come out and you realise there was all this stuff in there that you really just needed to give the space and the time and the energy to. And recognising that it is probably the most important part of my job Mm. because if I don't do that, if I don't give my subconscious a chance to actually get involved and to let these characters and these stories and these ideas find form, then I'm going to be a pretty impoverished artist, not just financially, but just the ideas that are going to be individual and possibly make a mark on the world won't be there. Mm. And I think you you risk just replicating the sort of things that are already out there because you're dealing with a much smaller language and a much smaller set of ideas if you're not allowing those deep connections to come out. It's a common thing across a range of art forms though, isn't it? Because I, I was um, listening to Alex Leahy who was on Breakfasters Live last week and talking about going to study music, going to music school as mm-hmm. being just kind of restrictive and taking all that fun and play out of it and then she's kind of gone and done her own thing which isn't sort of in the style that, that you'd be formally trained in but it's something that's liberating and, and unique. Yeah, I started off as a traditional artist first, which was more in the world of my mother's art. And it was fantastic because I learnt a lot of skills, you know, perspective, all that tone, all that really sensible stuff. And it was great. I felt like I filled up a toolkit full of tools. And then when I started trying to do narrative work, I felt like I had to take all those tools, kind of smash them up, reconstruct them, and then work out how I was going to use this skill set Um, and how I was going to add to it, you know, triple that toolbox and then transform it into something that actually told stories. It was so much harder. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. And all the artists who I'd ever seen sort of looking down their nose as a little bit of illustrators, I just thought, you have no idea. (laughs) It is so much harder to tell a story um, with your art. So you began as a fine artist and you still do portrait is that correct? No, no not so much anymore. You did do commissions for a while. Yeah. How is it different for people who do practice fine art? How is illustration different? What's the approach that's different as an illustrator to a fine artist or a painter, shall we say? Yeah, it's a funny thing. Um, I think 
narrative art was something that was very, very common or has been common up until very recently. When you think about it, um, people who had low literacy levels, a lot of their stories would be expressed through art. If you walk into any church, there's a really good reason why they're covered in drawings and paintings and why the Bibles were illustrated, especially when they used to be in Latin. Um, and, you know, the, the stockman scenes and things back in Australia from, you know, only about 100 years ago. It's a really recent thing that we've kind of turned away from narrative art as being you know that is not serious art um so i found that the work that i was doing was nice and i was proud of what i achieved but i really didn't feel like there was any soul involved i didn't feel like i had any connection or i was bringing anything particularly new to it and then i i was doing a demonstration one day at a um a children's literature event and i thought well instead of just sitting down and drawing for the kids i'm going to try something different and for the first time i kind of fused my my narrative work with big oil paintings and i set up a canvas and i'd found this great picture of a lion roaring and i just started painting i pretty much ignored everyone for 3 hours and just painted this crazy storm of a painting of a lion roaring with colour exploding all around him and it was the most fun I've ever had in my life I was on such a high and after that I just thought I am never looking back and I just basically (laughs) stopped all my traditional work at that moment and you know a a lovely craziness was born, it was Mm. wonderful And you have twin boys I do Did did, did Having twins, I mean you know, that'd be incredibly busy for one. <laughs> Just but a little bit. <laughs> did, did, did that change at all your approach to, to children's literature and, and the types of, um, you know, art and illustrations you created? Yeah, Sally will know that I was terrified before my kids came along because, you know, having worked for 13 years, seven days a week and having every family gathering with me on the corner drawing of the table because I I didn't have time to stop and have dinner Um, the idea that all this would suddenly stop was utterly terrifying and it did stop and it was great, really really frightening and great because um, I realised I didn't have anything like the time I had previously so I had to make some really big choices and that was the point where I thought okay, I'm not going to do the little jobs, I'm going to start saying no to the stuff I don't want to do particularly but I feel I have to and I'm going to start this is the point where I started stretching myself as an artist and thinking if I'm going to do it it's got to be worth doing Mm. and uh, the books I've done since then it's only been two books Um, my boys are five sorry five and three quarters they would say (laughs) Um, they've been much better books and a big gamble I would say they're your best work yeah Yeah. well you're very present in them and you really do feel that you've given yourself the time and energy (laughs) but you also say the the publisher has a big role to play in that as well that you do feel like your publisher was was the support that you needed to be able to do that yeah definitely I mean it's it's new territory when you you decide that you're going to really you know say this is my brain guys I hope you enjoy it and you're trying to craft a work out of a whole lot of ideas you've been working on for a very long time and try and channel that into a story it's really quite difficult and um i did this last book with alan and unwin and that was fantastic because um the main editor i worked with uh was erica wagner and she's a fantastic oil painter herself so for a start she wasn't frightened of the idea of me doing these big canvases so long as we could photograph them um And Elise Jones, my other editor there, she is amazing with story and ideas. And I would go in there and we'd be talking about psychology and backstories and history and, you know, what I thought I'd written versus, you know, what I actually had written. And I'd walk out of there with just elated feeling like we'd suddenly jumped forward three months because they were proper, creative, constructive meetings. Um, I've had editors before that just say, oh, I love the idea. And when are you going to walk in with the finished thing? 
which is terrible because I want someone to tell me if I'm if I'm messing it up or I've missed something. Um, but this was this was wonderful. You know, talking about symbolism and. That was fantastic. The process, I didn't know the process could be that good. Mm-hmm. And do, do you sort of wake up every morning knowing exactly what you're going to be working on that day? <laughs> no. Unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of the time it's answering emails and doing stuff like that and trying to... I have a studio at home, so trying to avoid spending the whole day, trying to catch up on washing, um, mostly for the twins. Um, <laughs> No, it changes a lot. And I do try to make sure that I pull out that sketchbook and I sit down and I just sort of get into that nice, quiet zone. Um, And I go out to schools quite a bit and teach kids just in these little incursions when I rile them up and get the hell out of there. And it's lovely to talk to them about just how long drawing takes and that isn't that a fantastic thing because you become quiet and you become still and especially the way I draw with these very fine, detailed lines... Um, you do settle into this little zen rhythm and your mind can start to wander and that's when you start to put little details in without even realising them. It's almost like you're creating the story as you're going along. Yeah, Mm. and I like to work straight into pen as much as possible because when you make a mistake, you've just got to go with it. Mm. Mm. And a lot of my best drawings happen because I made a mistake and at first you've got this panic of, ah, I've really screwed that up. And then you have to get creative and you have to become flexible and... You know, you try something new that you didn't think you were going to do before, and it, it can take things in a whole new direction. Mm. Well, we are um, just about out of time. We've been listening to the reading room on the Grapevine this morning with Sally Richmond, our uh, regular monthly guest, and joining us today has been Elise Hurst. And you can um, check out Elise's website for um, a whole lot of information about her work and also information on her books. And uh, her most recent one, uh, Adelaide's Secret World, which has been shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Awards, is out through Alan and Unwin. You can get yourself a copy at all good bookstores or, of course, by order online. Thanks so much to you both for coming in. Thanks, Dylan. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.